Hi, it's Manveen here. This is the third episode of an investigation by my colleague Emily Dugan at the Sunday Times. In this episode, Emily goes to the scene of the crime in Greater Manchester and hears how a victim can, through no fault of their own, misidentify their attacker. This is part three of 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story. Before we begin, just a warning. Some listeners may find some of what you're about to hear distressing. Also, there's some strong language. Last time on 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story. There's never been any of Andy's DNA found. Where's the evidence? Well, you've got rid of it, haven't you? Forensic aware. The victim telling the jury that she was, quote, more than 100% certain it was him. The description and the scratch evidence and everything else, none of it matched me. He had been uh, nice to people, respectful to women. The crime didn't fit Andy at all. Both sightings lasted mere seconds. And yet what they said to the jury was, we are absolutely sure that it was Andy. A mum who was choked, battered unconscious and then raped by a maniac has told police how she thought she would die. That's the voice of reporter Neil Keeling. But despite the victim's horrendous ordeal, officers today said they had received just six calls from the public after appealing for information. He's reading one of the first articles he wrote about the brutal rape in Greater Manchester that Andy Malkinson was convicted for. The 33-year-old woman told detectives that during the frenzied attack, she thought of her two children and feared she would never see them again. Back in 2003... Neil was covering the area of Salford for the Manchester Evening News. She was attacked after leaving her boyfriend's home in Atherton in the early hours after a row. He presumed she had gone out for a short walk, but she had decided to go home to Kersley. As she crossed the motorway bridge in Salford, she was snatched by a man with a bodybuilder physique. She was dragged off Cleggs Lane, Little Halton, down an embankment and into bushes next to the M61 where the fiend carried out a sustained and terrifying assault. You're listening to 17 Years, The Andrew Malkinson Story, a podcast brought to you by The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Emily Dugan, a reporter at The Sunday Times. This is a series about how one man spent almost two decades in jail for a crime he says he didn't commit. Despite trying repeatedly to clear his name, he remains a convicted sex offender. But now, we've uncovered new evidence which casts doubt on the verdict and the criminal justice process. Oh, horrific. I was terrified, of course. He was in jail with all life sentence prisoners, murderers, child molesters, rapists... And gangsters and really dangerous people, you know. And I was, I was really scared. In 2004, Andy began his life sentence. He's remembering back to his first few nights in prison following his conviction. Prisons are dirty. They're not clean. They mop the floors now and again, but the mops are black. Lots of noise, smells, unwashed bodies. You never get used to it. At least I didn't. Were you sharing a cell with someone? Most of the time I was on my own. Originally, I was sharing a cell with a guy. He was charged with some kind of gang-related murder, I think. 
He seemed kind of sympathetic. I was telling him, I didn't fucking do it. And he said, it's all right, I know what the police are like. Fit people up, left, right and centre. For now, we'll leave Andy in HMP Manchester, the high-security prison where he was initially sent. In part two, we heard how the prosecution's case against Andy rested on the victim identifying him as her attacker. There was no forensic evidence putting Andy at the scene. Today we'll go to that scene and also hear from a victim of a different rape. It will show how a survivor of such a horrendous ordeal can identify the wrong person. This is part three, witness testimony. Detective Inspector Steve Bell said, I cannot stress enough how urgent the situation is. The man must be caught soon. We should hear today from forensic scientists whether DNA has been recovered from the scene. Neil Keeling's article was published less than a week after the attack. It was headlined, I thought I'd die, says Rape Mum. The rapist was in his early to mid-thirties, five foot eight with olive skin. He had a flat stomach, well-developed chest muscles and thick, wavy, dark hair. The article ends with a call for help from Greater Manchester Police. To contact police if they were suspicious of any relative or workmate who appeared agitated and fitted the attacker's description. It is thought the man may have scratches to his face and body as the woman tried to fight him off. As we know, eventually it was Andy who'd be arrested and convicted for this rape. The prosecution's case stood or fell on witness testimony. We don't know who the woman in this case was, due to the anonymity that victims of sexual violence are given in this country. But might she have been mistaken? First, I'm in Salford in Greater Manchester. Just gone past it. It's there. Yeah, that one. I'm with my producer, Will. It's a warm summer's day. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where... We found the house that Andy was staying in back in 2003. You know, I'm looking at the house now. It's pretty nondescript. It's in the sort of outskirts of Manchester. Not unlike a lot of other suburbs on the outskirts of big cities. You know, it's, you can hear a few kids playing out in the background. And even just us recording here, it's quite a quiet street. And you can see uh, people looking out from the windows, wondering what we're up to. Andy says he never left that night. That's key, isn't it? That's the thing. And one of the challenges for Andy is that the guy he was sharing with a flat with, which was somebody he worked with in security... He was often stayed away with his girlfriend. He can't be sure if he was even there that night. What I guess Andy would dearly love is for someone to be able to say, you never left home that night, but he didn't have that. Indeed, the colleague who Andy was staying with, a man called Simon Oakes, whose old house were outside right now, testified that he couldn't be sure if Andy left that night. I tried to track Simon down and speak to him for this series but discovered he'd moved on, and I later found out he'd died in 2012. We leave the spot and head to nearby Armitage Avenue, a long single carriageway road which becomes Clegg's Lane, where the attack took place. The road runs through Little Holton, the suburb Andy was staying in, and goes over the M61 motorway, where it then bends eastwards towards a small town called Kersley. Kersley is where the victim was heading when the attack occurred. She lived there. This is the beginning of Armitage Avenue. We find the first point on her route, where she says she first encountered the attacker. It's at that point she looked round. 
We're standing by a set of railings. It's four in the afternoon. The traffic's busy, cars and vans whizzing by. Further along, on the other side of the road, there are a few houses set back from the pavement. There are street lamps here, aren't there? They're every sort of 30 yards, you've got street lights. It does seem odd that no one saw more. But then, on all of this, we should caveat that it was 18 years ago. I mean, yeah. it's possible that there wasn't as much street lighting then. In the middle of the night, this would feel really eerie because you've got really tall trees all around us. And what happened that night, in her account, was that there was a voice from the bushes, the other side of these railings. Yeah, it was... When you read the judge's summing up document, it's at this point that she says there was a male voice. It said, come into the bushes. I have a gun pointed at your head. But she doesn't, and she continues to walk. It would be utterly terrifying. I think at that moment, she texts her boyfriend. So there are contemporaneous texts at that time. And then she crosses the road and starts making her way up. If we're looking towards the road that becomes Clegg's Lane and it's on Clegg's Lane that this horrific crime occurs. As you and I are standing here, if we're looking up, she's walking on the right-hand side of the road, but it's after this point, roughly around here, obviously we can't quite pinpoint it, she crosses the road and she walks on the left-hand side and then it's further up that she first sort of looks round and at that point she says she sees a figure following her. This is it, here. So that's obviously the M61. We follow the route taken by the victim and walk up the road which becomes Clegg's Lane. We approach the embankment by the M61 motorway and find the spot where the 33-year-old mother of two was raped and left for dead. You're miles from anyone. There's nothing. The really striking thing as you... as we just walk to this place is you're suddenly so much more on your own. I mean, in the last place, at least there were some houses in the distance. Here, it's one big long road with high trees and undergrowth either side of it, leading to a very big motorway bridge. It was just afterwards that she was found kind of crawling up this embankment, completely bleeding, battered, in a terrible state. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's quite... I feel almost... It's hard to describe the feeling, just... It really brings home the importance of not forgetting the victim in all this because it's a horrible feeling to think what happened right here. I would say that as a journalist, I am um, 90% work ethic, 10% talent, and it's got me to where I am. I'm with Neil Keeling in North Manchester. He's been working at Manchester Evening News since 1987. Back then, Neil was a Salford district reporter, so he knows the area well. This was a major story for me to cover. It was bigger than just Salford. Neil is slightly hunched as he talks to me. He has a wiry frame and an expressive face. We're sitting in his front garden. It's the early evening. The light is beginning to fade. I wanted to get a sense from him of what Little Holton, the area where the crime took place, is like. Originally, Little Holton was a small mining village. In the 70s and 60s, when there was massive slum clearance in inner city Salford, they needed to relocate people. So as a result, two or three new estates were built in Little Holton and it just expanded in terms of this residential overspill area. 
it needed its own shopping mall, its own schools to sustain that, which it got. So it became a small town, really. And how would you describe it as an area in terms of, you know, is it a tough place? What are the, you know, what's it like as a community? I'm reticent to damn the area as a rough place because that would be unfair. And there's some great people live there. There's no doubt it's deprived area. The council opened a centre two or three years ago in which kids were fed during the summer holidays because they were worried that they weren't going to get fed properly while they were off school. That gives you an indication of what it's like. Back in the summer of 2003, when the rape was first reported, how did the community react? It sounds like a very tired journalistic cliche, but I think authentically there was true fear from the way that the police described the incident. I mean, it was horrific. What I do remember is the police being driven to find whoever was was responsible. Since Andy Malkinson's release, have you heard any kind of local reaction to it? Have you had any impression of... The honest truth? Yeah. No. Which is very sad. Yeah. Because, you know, if this is a miscarriage of justice, it's a massive one. I mean, he's been banged up for 17 years for something he didn't do which means that an extremely dangerous man has got away with it. Who knows, probably gone on to commit further offences. Hello, I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. So, back in July 2003, the crime shook the community of Little Holton in Salford, and the police were set on finding a perpetrator. These two facts are at once independent of each other, but also completely connected. In part two of this series, we heard how there were no forensics linking Andy to the crime scene. Yet the victim said she was more than 100% certain he was her attacker. But without putting blame on the victim... Could she have been mistaken? To understand how this might happen, or how this does happen, I'm going to tell you a different story. One with similarities to this case, but which began 19 years earlier and over three and a half thousand miles away. Well, I'm 59 this month. I'm the mother of 31-year-old triplets. I am the grandmother of five amazing little people. Jennifer Thompson is speaking to me from her home in North Carolina in the United States. Out my window is beautiful 12 acres of woods and a porch swing and lovely trees and green grass. I've been wanting to speak to Jennifer for a while because she knows better than most how memories can deceive with catastrophic consequences. Six years ago, she founded a charity called Healing Justice. It works with both survivors of violent crime and those who are mistakenly convicted. It stems from her own story. I'm a rape survivor from a violent rape that happened when I was 22 years old that resulted in a wrongful conviction. Jennifer's waived her right to anonymity as a victim of sexual violence. In 1984, Jennifer was a university student living in Burlington, North Carolina. One night, a stranger broke into her apartment. I was able to fight my way through it and survive it. And 
helped the police come up with a resemblance of the person that I had remembered that had raped me, who had also gone on to rape a second woman that evening. I knew that we had a serial rapist in the community. I wanted the police to find him and get him off the streets. It led to a suspect, a young African-American man in the community by the name of Ronald Cotton. Ronald Cotton was a plausible suspect. He'd been arrested on burglary charges and had been to prison for attempted sexual assault. The police showed me a photographic lineup and then a physical lineup within a week. And both times I identified Ronald Cotton out of both lineups, to which police said that that's who they thought it had been. With Jennifer's identification, in 1985, Cotton was sentenced to life in prison. After the conviction, Jennifer was still left numb from the trauma. Life becomes one big, awful, grey blur and a mess. And I was trying to pick up what tiny pieces of my former life that resembled anything that I recognised. It was very few. However, just two years later, in 1987, Jennifer was called back to court. The state of North Carolina had ordered a retrial after one of Cotton's fellow inmates was going around bragging about having committed the rapes. Jennifer had to testify and go through it all again. And for a second time, she identified Cotton, not the new suspect. And Cotton remained in jail. Every time the courts kind of interrupt your life and bring back any movement in your case, it shatters what you've been trying to build. Jennifer did eventually manage to push forward with her life. But 10 years after Cotton's conviction, there was a twist in the case. In 1995, the state of North Carolina allowed a post-conviction DNA testing. And the DNA came back and not only showed that Ronald Cotton had been excluded as the perpetrator. But the other suspect, who'd been bragging about the rapes in jail, was indeed the culprit. His DNA matched the sample from the crime. And he was the rapist of not only my case and the other woman, but had been left out in the community for nine months and committed 24 other violent crimes before he was ever apprehended. It's an incredible chain of events. And I think amazing strength from you to come through all that and then set up something that can create something positive from all that. If we go back to 1984, how sure were you that it was him that you'd chosen in the lineup? Well, by the time that I was given what we now refer to as confirmation, right? Someone saying, that's a great job. That's who we thought it was. When that was said to me after the identification of the photographic lineup, then, of course, I'm absolutely positive that I got it right. And I think it's really important to understand two things that are critical. One is that no crime victim, no crime survivor wants an innocent person to go to prison. People need to understand that. You have been raped, you've been traumatized, you've been violated, you've been hurt. You're thinking from a trauma brain, right? The second thing to understand is it's not the individual who is making the mistake. It is the criminal justice system that sets up these procedures that are flawed to begin with. Obviously, Jennifer's talking from an American perspective. But while police in the US and UK handle eyewitness testimony slightly differently, they both face issues with its reliability. 
In America, of all 375 wrongful convictions overturned on the basis of DNA evidence, almost 7 in 10 had initially relied on incorrect eyewitness identification. There are many documented examples of it happening in Britain too, although there are no comparable figures. For Jennifer, the way police handle eyewitnesses needs addressing. Crime survivors don't come up with a composite sketch. Crime survivors don't come up with the physical lineup. These are all led by criminal justice system participants and actors, police, investigators. And when you are asked to participate in a system that is inherently going to be flawed, then it's not the person looking at the photographs that is responsible. It is the system that is at fault, whether it's intentionally at fault or unintentionally at fault. Oftentimes, investigators will give leading information that begins to corrupt or contaminate the person's memory. And once you start corrupting and contaminating memory, it's contaminated. Like you can't extract the contamination out of the memory. It's now become a new memory and sometimes a false memory. Do you think Conviction should ever be allowed on the basis just of eyewitness testimony. The majority of sexual violence, the majority of crimes are committed by people we know. When the guy down the street rapes you, somebody in your parish, somebody at the school, somebody who's a babysitter or family member, yeah, we need to continue using eyewitness identification. Do we want to use it as the only piece of information and there's no other corroborating evidence? I think we want to be really, really careful. And at the time, you know, I'm just thinking, especially in cases of uh, rape and sexual assault, where it's seen to be a kind of a stranger, dangerous man on the loose, that to what extent pressure from the media, pressure from within a police force as well, what role might that play? Well, I do think it plays a huge role. It, it is the pressure from within, and that's a cultural pressure, I believe, that creates this hurry up and get somebody, uh, appease the public, you know, make them feel safe again. And it can and, and often does lead to wrongful convictions. Back in Manchester, I asked Neil Keeling if he thought pressure to find a suspect might have played a role in Andy's arrest. From my memory, there's no doubt that there was colossal pressure to find whoever had done it. Now... I can't say whether or not the police weren't thorough, honest with the investigation. All I can say is that I could sense the pressure police were under to get this resolved. I'm not saying they've done anything wrong. I'm just telling you, at the time, this was a big deal and he had to be caught. At that time, did you assume he was guilty? I didn't assume he was guilty because I remember when I was covering the case, the forensic evidence that the cops had been convinced was going to come never did come. And obviously the explanation that for that that was given in court was that Malkinson was forensically aware and was wearing a condom. But it was the victim's absolute belief quote, 100%, that he was the man that got the conviction, I think. 
Have you heard of the case of Andy Malkinson? Is it in the news in the U.S. at all? It is not in the news here. I mean, we listen, we have 2,777 wrongful convictions right now on the books. We have something unfolding every two or three days here in this country. And for Jennifer, how does she reflect now on what happened to her? Sadness. There was just so many people hurt. And I look back on the girl that got hurt that night and how she has been gone. I mean, I lost her that night. And something really amazing blossomed from that. But it's really sad that that's my experience. And yet, I also feel incredibly honored that I get to share my life with the bravest people on this planet, which are survivors from criminal justice system nightmares. Chatting to Jennifer really made me think. It's important when covering a potential miscarriage of justice that you don't forget a terrible crime took place and that there's a victim in all of this. And for that victim, she felt that she had justice on that day back in 2004. But it's increasingly looking like perhaps she didn't. And I wanted to look at it from the victim's perspective. She was more than 100% convinced that she'd found her attacker. But all the evidence suggests that she may not have done. Next time on 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story. I was forced to survive in order to prove me innocent. Andy explains why protesting his innocence meant he spent even more time in jail. And almost two decades after he was first arrested. Essentially, that report found was there was DNA which did not belong to Andy. There's a breakthrough in the forensic evidence. Who is this unknown male whose DNA the Greater Manchester Police have been sitting on for nearly two decades? Whose is it? You've been listening to part three of 17 Years, The Andrew Malkinson Story, with me, Emily Dugan. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series is written by me and Will Rowe. It's produced by Will Rowe, with assistance from Brenna Dardolf. The executive producers are Poppy Damon and Lynn Jones, with original music and sound design by Tom Birchall. If you've been affected by any issues in this podcast, there are some helplines and websites you can access. Just go to the notes in the podcast description. And if you have any information that you want to share on Andy's case, or remember anything from the time, you can contact me directly. My details are also in the description notes. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.